You're listening to the UBC Medicine Learning Network. This podcast was recorded on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh people. To learn more about the land you are on, visit native-land.ca. Welcome to Women's Health Interrupted, a women's health research cluster podcast. I'm Rebecca Barron. And I'm Sydney Clips. Through scientific inquiry and storytelling, this podcast brings you content about women's health from many angles. Lan is an emergency medical call taker and dispatcher and a member of the Patient Research Advisory Board for the Endometriosis Pelvic Pain Laboratory at UBC. Kate is a graduate student researcher interested in new strategies for moving evidence into health policy and practice. Recently, Kate co-led a study on menstrual health and endometriosis education in schools and is involved with endometriosis advocacy through the pan-Canadian organization called EndoAct. Welcome back to this week's episode of Endometriosis, What We Know and Don't Know. We are so excited to be joined today by our speakers, Lan, pronouns they, them, and Kate, pronouns she, her. Thank you both for being here with us today. Oh, I'm so excited to be here. Me too. So to start us off, what is endometriosis and why is it a significant public health issue? Basically, endometriosis, it's a condition that affects one in 10 women and then uh, unmeasured amount of transgender and non-binary or gender diverse people. It's when tissue similar to what grows inside the uterus starts growing in other parts of the body. So it's been found on the lungs, the heart, um, bowels. Um, it basically, we think it could be found potentially anywhere, but there's been a lot of unexpected places that, um, grows. And so then it really acts like the endometrium. So when you're in your cycle or you're menstruating, it swells and gets inflamed and it causes pain in other parts of the body, which is sometimes why it goes unrecognized if it's on your heart some people just say that they're having the doctors say they're having anxiety uh because they're having chest pain and they're young and uh so it can go really underdiagnosed the the way it affects the people that have it is in multiple ways like it affects their sexual relationships because um 50 of people with endometriosis have pain with sex it affects their jobs their schooling their uh hobbies because oftentimes you're completely debilitated. I work as a dispatcher and the amount of times I had to leave work and go to the hospital um, because I couldn't sit up in my chair were like, it almost made me lose my job. It also like prevented me from going further in my job. There were multiple times where I could have advanced, but I missed out on the training because I was off due to surgeries or just unmanaged pain. Um, it literally affected my wedding day and just everything. It, I would be on the floor throwing up and you would go to the hospital uh, because I couldn't keep any of my pain meds down. And then you get labeled as drug seeking because you're coming in every month looking for painkillers, but you just have no way to manage your pain. So 
it's very disruptive. And I got to the point where I felt very crazy because I like, you can't see anything happening. You know, you are bleeding heavily. There are larger clots, but, um, there's just nothing for you to like tangibly, tangibly hold on to and be like, Oh, this is what's happening. And so I end up just feeling like, well, maybe this isn't what's happening. Maybe I'm just, yeah, going crazy. And quite honestly, I know for a lot of people that suffer from endometriosis, the mental health component can be the worst. I had severe PTSD from work, uh, from a number of bad calls I had taken. And I was more suicidal during my endometriosis flare-ups than I ever was with my PTSD. It just feels like, because you don't know what's happening and you feel like it's never going to end and nobody believes you. It's very, very isolating. So sorry you had to go through that. I mean, that must have been a very, yeah, hard thing to go through. Um, and I know you're doing so much work now to help individuals who are diagnosed with endometriosis. So what was that catalyst? What inspired you to become an advocate? I think it was when I finally got referred to the pelvic pain clinic at BC Women's. And then I ended up going to one of their seminars on endometriosis. And there was like a sign-up sheet to be part of their patient research advisory board. And I was just at the point where I was like, none of this is worth it because I had been suffering since I was 13 and I got diagnosed when I was 27. Um, I was like, none of this is worth it if I can't help other people. Um, and so it was actually like nine months later that, uh, Heather from the patient research advisory board contacted me. And then, um, I started doing presentations with them and helping with, uh, decide what studies we were going to push through to research endometriosis. And then that's how I end up finding out about endoact and getting connection with Kate and, um, joining their team, helping with advocacy and communications. And yeah, it just is, I've always been someone that I feel like I can't just let other people suffer and I need to make my experience worth it. So. Absolutely. And Kate, how, I was wondering as well with endometriosis, how do women know if they have it? Is there a simple diagnosis? Yeah, that's a really great question. And I think it's one of the big challenges with endometriosis. Um, in Canada, there's, and everywhere in the world, there's a years long delay to diagnosis. So six to 11 years, we hear from people who wait 20 years for diagnosis. So there's a really long delay. And the reason for that is there is no non-invasive way um, to diagnose the condition. So you can't do a blood test that tells you that you have endometriosis. Um, the, the way to be definitively diagnosed is with a laparoscopy. Um, and, and now there's a shift or a discussion about clinical diagnosis. So based on symptoms and findings on imaging. Uh, but the, the answer is that even before you can get to that stage, you need to have a healthcare provider who acknowledges your symptoms, who doesn't tell you that having menstrual, like severely painful periods is just part of being a woman and who starts investigating that pain. And I think that is a real challenge that people face. And it's been that way uh, for a long time. If you, if you speak to older folks with endo, they had that experience and it's still the case now. I was talking to someone who's 19 or 20 yesterday living with endo who had that same experience who talked about having to spell the word endometriosis for one of her one of her healthcare providers so it's not all providers but it's certainly um 
a little bit the luck of the draw in terms of who you speak to about your symptoms and what they do to move you on that path to diagnosis. That's crazy to hear. Wow. And do you think that that that's due to like broader social or political barriers that are preventing individuals from gaining that treatment? Yeah, Lan, you probably have thoughts on this too, but I I think gender is a huge issue. I think, um, you know, we used to diagnose folks with hysteria. I think there's a strong legacy of that. I think um, we do a lot around normalizing the pain that the people who menstruate experience. And I think sometimes there's a reluctance to engage um, with endometriosis when it doesn't relate particularly to infertility. So endometriosis, as Land described, can cause severe and chronic pain. And another symptom of endometriosis is infertility. And we know from the literature that often folks presenting with infertility are diagnosed more quickly than their counterparts who are di- who are experiencing pain and seeking care. So I think that also speaks to the really gender dimension of, of the condition that, that we care more when it relates to kind of your reproductive role to have children than we do in other circumstances. I don't know, Lynn, yeah, what do you think about that? It definitely, I had... Um... Well, the only reason I actually got referred to the pelvic pain clinic was because when I went into the hospital with my PTSD and I was talking to a nurse and saying, there's all these things that are going on. And she referred me um, or talked to my family doctor or sent a message to her. And that's how I ultimately got referred. So that's really funny because I've been to multiple doctors and it was this random eMERGE nurse that decided this isn't normal, which I'm so thankful for her. But um, yeah, I, we had been trying to conceive for since we had gotten married. So it was about five years and then finally went to the doctor and that's when they decided to do a lap laparoscopy. And, um, it, I, yeah, how many times I had been in the hospital, like completely doubled over in pain, vomiting continuously, and it was never acknowledged. And it wasn't until then. And even then after my laparoscopy, the doctor that did it said, okay, so you can start trying to have kids anytime. No, like mention of how to like deal with the pain if it was going to come back. And, um, it really was quite gendered. Even I end up having to get a hysterectomy because I have an additional condition called adenomyosis. So the endometrium grows into the wall of the uterus. So it makes it really, that contributed to my fertility makes it really hard for the fertilized egg to stay attached. Um, and even with that, my husband had to come to make sure he was okay with me getting a hysterectomy when, and he just sat there and said, it's not my body. It's, it's their body. They get to choose if they want this, like we can figure out another Avenue for children. So it did feel very, uh, very much like a, that was my, that was my role to be able to have children. And that's all that mattered, not be able to have a functional life. There was no consideration of, okay, you get pregnant and don't have endometriosis symptoms for nine months, but then you're trying to care for a newborn and you're laying on the floor and you can't even pick up your child because you're in so much pain. And that's ultimately why we decided that a hysterectomy would be best because I wouldn't be able to parent with, with my period, there'd be no way. So Yeah. I can only imagine like how hard that must be, like just a parent and experiencing all those symptoms at the same time. Like that doesn't sound like something that's very easy to do. Um, so like I was wondering, Land, in terms of support, what type of support do you think people could receive or like to better receive from maybe the 
federal government or from hospitals or just in general with primary care? Yeah, I think the once we start getting like the the advocacy piece down and making it very aware to healthcare providers that this is a real issue, the the doctors need to offer and healthcare providers need to offer more support than here's some naproxen or let's try another birth control. And they really need to explore those avenues of getting the actual endometriosis diagnosed, whether if that's through uh, laparoscopy and actually coming up with giving people all the options instead of continually putting band-aids on it. And I also think there needs to be a really big consideration when you have a patient that is diagnosed with endometriosis that you are checking in on their mental health because, um, I mean, I even worked with someone who lost their best friend to suicide because of their um, endometriosis. And so I think that needs to come together because you've just been so ignored and like it, it continually um, just pain affects your mental health and then like just not being recognized affects your mental health. So I think there needs to be kind of like a double-edged approach to that of managing their pain, but also looking at how the patient's mental health is. Um, And I think um, in terms of like emergency care and urgent care, it would be, I just don't know how someone didn't see like, oh, this person's coming in every month. Like, this isn't normal. How, like, let's maybe not label them as drug seeking because once a month, every 28 days is like a really weird drug seeking habit. Like, and let's try and look broader and see that there's something going on. Yeah, I I think that's exactly right. I think, you know, endometriosis isn't just having a painful period. It's a full body disease that that really can affect every aspect of someone's life. And I, I also agree, Lam, that there's, there's a lot um, to do on the healthcare provider front. And I think those healthcare providers also need to be supported to provide adequate care. Um, and I think one of the things that we're working on in the advocacy space is trying to um, secure sort of a national action plan to provide better care for folks. I mean, I, access to care is very difficult. It's difficult in BC, but it's even more difficult in the Maritimes and in the territories where there simply aren't um, people uh, with the capacity and training to provide the specialized care that some folks need. So I think that's um, something that's really important um, and something that's achievable also for for people advocating for for change for endometriosis. I think another important thing is just measuring like what is going on in Canada with this condition. We don't have good sexual and reproductive health indicators in this country, although the federal government did just announce um, a plan to develop that. So I think making sure that endometriosis is is present in those kind of health indicators is something that's important to look for, given that it affects um, one in 10 women and, and some proportion of our gender diverse and trans population is, is so important and a really important first step, right? We can't fix what we don't measure. So the more information we have about what those experiences are, uh, the better. And, and there's an opportunity for governments to step in and play a leadership role to make that happen. Absolutely. Yeah. I think the government definitely just considering more supports for these individuals who are experiencing you know, endometriosis and all the effects that that has on their lives and the quality of life as well. So I also know that outside of the binary world of cis women and cis men, 
There's also a population of non-binary folks whose experiences with endometriosis are still very much unresearched. So how can we ensure that these groups, among other marginalized communities, do not get passed unnoticed in our healthcare system? Kate and uh, I talked about this a little bit with one of the research projects she was doing, and um, it can be very hard just even with like the language and research because it hasn't really evolved yet to the statistics wise to be able to include those people. And if you're going to separate them into groups, like now you have this third group. So I think there's a lot of work that needs to be done, even just at the research capacity to make sure those people um, are included. And I think we just need to start looking at people with the sexual organs that they have and not identify like equating that to their gender. It's like, okay, here we have people with uteruses and people without and, uh, or people born with uteruses and people without, cause I don't have my uterus, but I still have ovaries and I still have pain. Um, so I think just trying to look at the root of the cause rather than how somebody identifies will be a big shift in research. And uh, Kate can probably speak a bit more to that. Um, but Overall, the healthcare space needs to be more inclusive for trans and non-binary people. Um, and I think it is shifting to that. I mean, I have a healthcare provider that as soon as I said, I would like to go by land and these are my pronouns, it was an immediate shift and there was no slip ups. And I'm very lucky to have that, but I know a lot of people aren't. So the continuing education for the healthcare providers and also being able to have like access to a list of like inclusive providers would be very helpful for people suffering because again there's nothing more infuriating than going to someone who one doesn't acknowledge your symptoms but also doesn't even acknowledge who you are um but yeah I think in terms of the research perspective Kate might have a bit more on how we can kind of go to that uh direction of help making sure they're measured properly. Yeah, yeah, I think. Um, so one of the things that um, the organization that Land and I are part of EndoAct is doing is we've asked people to share their stories with us about what it's like uh, to live with endometriosis and seek care in Canada. And people, um, if they feel comfortable, can tell us um, where they live, what their gender identity is, and uh, their socioeconomic status and they consent can consent whether or not to include their stories in research and the reason we ask those kinds of questions is to understand what the intersecting barriers to to care might be because i think the reality is it's already difficult uh, for women to access care for this condition because of sexism i think it's additionally difficult for people um, with other intersecting identities to access care so whether that be um, someone who's trans and needs gender affirming care. It might be um, someone in a lesbian relationship who has difficulty accessing care because they're not planning to conceive and, and they face a barrier in that sense. Certainly like the legacy of colonialism and this, this, this language around drug seeking um, really negatively affects some indigenous folks with endometriosis. So I think it's time um, to start digging in and understanding what those differences are for different folks. And then when we have the opportunity to people who design health systems and services to say, 
we already know that these are the additional challenges that people face and here are their recommendations and their preferences for how they should receive care. So to build that in kind of from the beginning where we can and provide that feedback where we can so people are getting, you know, the right care in the right place at the right time. Absolutely. And, and for those listeners out there who want to learn more about EndoAct and just endometriosis in general, what resources um, would you recommend for them? I mean, I'll, I can jump in and say the Endo, the EndoAct website is www.endoact.ca. Um, there's hundreds of stories at this point of people um, from people who live with endometriosis. So if you're interested to learn more about what that might be like, or if you have endometriosis and you'd like to share your story, that's one opportunity. I also know there's um, a Facebook group called Endo Knows No Gendo, which is specifically geared uh, towards trans and gender diverse folks living with endometriosis. Uh, Lan, I don't know if you have other suggestions. Yeah, um, particularly for like uh, painful sex um, and endometriosis, there's a website that uh, we created at the PRAV called uh, endopain.endometriosis.org. And it we really worked hard to make sure that it was inclusive of all um, like ethnicities and uh, sexual orientations and gender uh, presentations. And so on there, there's a um, very clear list of like, these are the treatments that are out there and here are some resources. There's another part of it that I really like where they take uh, research studies and they break them down to be very understandable into kind of like fact sheets because it can be really overwhelming when you're trying to look at research research and you don't understand what an abstract is and all the methods and what have you. Um, and there's really great diagrams on there of just like where endometriosis actually is. And I know for me, when I saw them, I was like, oh, this would have been very helpful to be like this is what's happening in my body because even after I had had like my first laparoscopy I had no idea what they were taking out or what it looked like <laughs> we're so happy to have the two of you working and, and leading this effort as well um, and thank you so much for coming on and speaking with us today at Women's Health Interrupted and it has just been such an inspiring talk so thank you to the both of you Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you for having us. got a few new synapses firing for you be sure to subscribe on whichever platform you get your podcasts to hear our episodes when they drop every second wednesday each month get in touch with us we welcome any questions and constructive feedback you can email us at womenshealth.interrupted at ubc.ca or find us on twitter at research on wh or on instagram at whr cluster to learn more about this topic, check out our show notes at womenshealthresearch.ubc.ca. We would like to thank the Michael Smith Foundation, BioTalent Canada, Patreon, and the UBC Global Lounge for their generous support of this project. 
We would also like to thank the UBC Medicine Learning Network and its wonderful staff for hosting our podcast. And a special thank you to Catherine Moore, who manages the Women's Health Research Cluster for all of her work in the development of this initiative. Thank you so much for joining us. Have a wonderful day or evening wherever you are, and please take care of yourselves. Wishing you good health. This has been a presentation of the UBC Medicine Learning Network. 